Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, thanks for joining me this Friday, February 9th. Um, we're going to do our regular Friday thing where we open up the phone line, 773-763-9278, to find out what you think are the most important stories of the day and the week. But uh, today we're also going to intersperse this time with guests. We're going to open up the phone lines, have a guest, open up the phone lines, have a guest, open up the phone lines, have a guest. And that's how today is going to go. It just worked out that way. So, um, you just heard at uh, the top of the hour in the AP News a little bit of our vice president's response to this uh, Department of Justice special counsel report put together by uh, Republican Robert Hur, looking into Joe Biden's handling of classified documents. You know, after the debacle with Trump, um, they everybody started looking around. Uh, Mike Pence had a few. Joe Biden had a few. All of which were, of course, immediately turned over. But of course, Joe Biden, well, we got to look into this. We got to investigate. So at the same time that Hamas terrorists were wreaking havoc on October 7th, uh, President Biden was trying to find time to speak to Robert Hur while he was um, also in the middle of staying on top of what was happening in Israel and Gaza. And um, you heard a little bit about what Kamala Harris had to say about that, but I want to share her entire answer to that question. Uh, she's asked about this, you know, because this report is like, um, well, yeah, no. Um, first of all, it starts off by saying he intentionally kept these documents. And then on page 215 of this 400 plus page report, it says um, that there was no reason to think that this was done intentionally. Robert Hur wrote both of these things in his report. One was a headline. One was buried on page 215. An embarrassing report. Some are comparing this to the fact that Jim Comey decided a few weeks before the election that he announced to everybody that he was looking into some of Hillary's more more of her emails. And then shortly before the election, he was like, oh, oh, yeah, uh, there was nothing there. Uh, never mind. Uh, never mind. It was, it was OK. Um, but the damage had been done. People think that that's kind of what Robert Hur is trying to do with this report, which is being described as uh, really overreach on the part of a prosecutor, and um, and just and just stunning in its partisan attack on President Biden. As I said, I want to share with you the entirety of uh, Kamala Harris's answer to the reporter who asked her about this report and the allegations enclosed therein, some specified, some implied, that Joe Biden is somehow this well-meaning, doddering old man. Listen to Kamala Harris. I'm 
glad you asked. Um, listen, I have been privileged and proud to serve as Vice President of the United States with Joe Biden as President of the United States. And what I saw of that report last night, I believe is, as a former prosecutor, um, the comments that were made by that prosecutor, gratuitous, inaccurate, and inappropriate. October 7th, Israel experienced a horrific attack, and I will tell you, we got the calls, the president and myself, in the hours after that occurred. It was an intense moment for the Commander-in-Chief of the United States of America, and I was in almost every meeting with the President in the hours and days that followed. Countless hours with the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State, the heads of our intelligence community, and the President was in front of and on top of it all asking questions and requiring that America's military and intelligence community and diplomatic community would figure out and know how many people were dead, how many are Americans, how many hostages, is the situation stable. He was in front of it all, coordinating and directing leaders who are in charge of America's national security, not to mention our allies around the globe. For days, and up until now, months. So the way that the President's demeanor in that report was characterized could not be more wrong on the facts and clearly politically motivated, gratuitous. And so I will say that when it comes to the role and responsibility of a prosecutor in a situation like that, we should expect that there would be a higher level of integrity than what we saw. Thank you. Thank you for the question. We should expect a higher level of integrity than what we saw. And what she's talking about, gratuitous comments, there were adjectives describing, well, like I said, uh, President Biden, a well-meaning, feeble old man is the bottom line. That wasn't the job. The job was, were these documents taken illegally, intentionally? Was anything inappropriate done with them? Those were the questions that Mr. Robert Herr had to answer. Now, whether or not Joe Biden could remember the year his son Bo died, and President Biden said later, it was none of his damn business. And by the way, when Donald Trump was interviewed on these same topics, do you know how many times he said, I can't remember, can't remember, can't remember, can't remember? And nobody came out of that saying, oh, my God, there's something terribly wrong with him. He can't remember anything. Why? Because that is an understood response to prosecutors 
when you don't want to answer their question. You wrinkle your brow and you look at them and you say, gosh, I can't remember. Everybody understood that context when Donald Trump said over and over and over and over again that he couldn't remember. Donald Trump, who hid the documents, who told people who worked at Mar-a-Lago to move them and not tell anybody. Unbelievable. Let's go to the phone lines. Jim's calling in from Chicago. Hey, Jim, how are you today? Hi, Joan. How are you? A couple of just the first thing I think of is the, the legal opinions of the United States have just gone awry. They haven't addressed, nobody's addressed, any of these courts have addressed the politician who refuses to leave office. Do we have to get a SWAT team to leave? The other one is uh, little boy Fatleroy is interviewing the arch criminal of the 21st century. Two people steeped in misinformation. What he intends to do with that, I don't know. And this story you're talking about today, Joan, it disturbed me greatly. I was listening to uh, Classical Muse this morning about 9 o'clock, and the announcer comes out and says, well, Joe Biden's so addle-brained that no jury in the world would give you, because an old man with papers, they would never. Well, I hope they take that same stance with me when I come to court. Yeah, really? I'll just say, you know what I mean? And let me know where the nearest cash uh, deposit is. But, but this, it's gone so far with these. Where are these opinions coming from, Joan? I mean, well, uh, we know it's an election. You know, here's something know that, a- Jim, that somebody pointed out on social media, that whenever Democratic presidents are the subject of an investigation, the Department of Justice assigns a Republican uh, lawyer to investigate. Whenever a Republican president has needed to be investigated by the Department of Justice, the Department of Justice always assigns a Republican to investigate them. So what's the what's the difference here? Somehow we're taking the high road by getting somebody who's already predisposed not to like our president to investigate them somehow. I I think that Merrick Garland bears a huge responsibility for this debacle. He has been a disastrous head of the DOJ. And I pray to God that one of the first things Biden does when he's reelected is ask Merrick Garland to step down. I can't agree with you more, Joe, because, I mean, this this is a national nightmare we're in. We've got a person who refuses to uh, adhere to any of our rules, and he's still running for president on the national ticket by the Republicans. And the Republicans know how what a menace he is to with America. And yet they... Uh, you know, they they won't criticize him under any circumstances. But this thing about Biden really ruined my breakfast this morning. I couldn't <laughs> believe that. I couldn't believe that it was coming from, you know, the classical music station at 9 o'clock in the morning. You know, usually they don't have an opinion, but this time they had an opinion. It really upset me because. Do they do. Um, they is, to, I assume you're talking about WFMT. Do they yes, do their exactly. own news or do they farm it out? Because we 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 get news from the Associated Press, and we can't control what they do or don't say. No, yeah, that's skewed Republican too. But WFMT never really dies in the politics. But this gentleman did this morning, and it just ruined my breakfast because I couldn't believe. What are you laying the groundwork that that, that uh, Trump isn't responsible because he's an old man, and therefore he doesn't know what papers look like? Or I mean, this is just a can of worms. It's just as ridiculous. 
What do you think of the interview with Tucker Carlson and, 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 and uh, that's insanity, isn't it? Yes. And here's what I think. Tucker Carlson, I've seen this happen with people who have big jobs before. They start to think if they're doing a big job and they're very successful, they start to think that the success and their access and the fact that people listen to them have more to do with who they are and what they're saying than the fact that they're, that they have this job. And Tucker Carlson lost the framework that made him a star. He's gone from a hero to zero. And I really believe that in his own mind, he thought he could start a YouTube channel and the three plus million people who watched him every night would flock to it. And it because it was him that they liked a similar thing. I was talking to Ray about this. A similar thing happened. There was a New York Times food critic, uh, Craig Clairborn. And supposedly over the years, you know, the New York Times food critic, that's a that's a big deal. You get invited places, you know, you're treated top drawer. And he by those who were commenting on this, he began to believe that it was him that he was the calling card. He was the draw. And supposedly when he left The New York Times to, I don't know, write books or whatever, um, people who were. In that era and observing said that he was utterly shocked to find out that he was no longer getting the invitations. He was no longer treated like royalty when he went to a restaurant. He was apparently stunned because after having done the job for a while and done it successfully, he felt that he was the draw, not his job as this really important person at this hugely important organization. If this has happened to people before, and I think Tucker Carlson is desperate to get back into the limelight, absolutely desperate and, you know, by all I, I did not watch the interview. I've tried to avoid any of the writing about it, though some of it, of course, has been impossible to avoid. But I'm seeing all kinds of things like Putin owns Tucker Carlson. Putin doesn't let Tucker Carlson get a word in edgewise. I mean, if you know, this is like Megyn Kelly. She was a big star at Fox. She got a huge contract to come to NBC. But instead of keeping her as the combative person that she made her uh, bones as, she went to NBC and they tried to make her smiley and soft for morning television. And it was a disaster. And now she is every time there's any kind of big news story. Megyn Kelly is always weighing in, posting on social media, trying to be really controversial because she wants to matter again. And she doesn't. And neither does Tucker Carlson. And that's my thought, Jim. But real quick, I heard Republican radio uh, celebrating over the fact that, that Trump might pick Tucker as his vice president. I've heard that several times. But this interview, I'm sure, is pointing. I'm sure that the uh, Trump campaign is delighted with it. They'll, they'll squeeze some kind of info out of it that'll make them not look so uh, pro-Russian uh, uh, in all well, their you know, stances. Part of the reason to do the interview was probably that he is trying to sell himself as a vice presidential candidate, which I think is um, 
I think Trump Trump is a street fighter. The only person he's going to bring on as vice president is somebody that either worships the ground he walks on or I've heard that privately some of Trump aides have been talking to people from the RFK Jr. camp. RFK Jr. is seen by many Republicans as someone who could draw votes from Donald Trump. So, you know, getting him on as vice president would potentially neutralize that or even the fact that he felt he was in the running to be Trump's vice president is going to make RFK Jr. pull his punches when he talks about Trump. So it's a win win for Trump. He's a cagey. He's a cagey guy. I know, I know he is, but he's not a fighter. He's never had a fist fight in his life. But the other thing is, if he was really smart and he really wanted to win, he'd pick Nikki Haley because Nikki Haley could probably coalesce, you know, the Republican voters that can't stand him. But he won't do that because nope. his ego demands that he uh, that he have center stage. Mm-hmm. But I think we're going to trounce him, Joan. I, but anyway, we still got this national nightmare hanging over I talked long enough. You have a great weekend, Joan. And thank <laughs> you very much. Thanks. Thank you very much, too. Thank you to Jim. Um, my personal opinion, and of course, this is something that could change, and no doubt uh, the the landscape will change. Uh, but right now, if Donald Trump had to pick a running mate right now, I think it would be Elise Stefanik. Um, he gets he he said a long time ago, not that anything he says can be written in stone, but he said a long time ago that he was going to pick a woman, um, and Elise Stefanik is um, out of all the people who are trying to suck up to him, she is sucking up the hardest. And um, I think that um, when I don't think he's going to make a choice until he absolutely has to, because this way, like I said, if anybody thinks that they have even a, 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 a slim shot at being a part of his administration or God maybe even his vice president, they are going to continue to fall in line to promote him, to not oppose him, to talk him up. It's a win-win-win for him. He's He would be stupid to go on record and name a vice presidential candidate. And he won't do it until he reads the tea leaves that it naming somebody will help him. Until he needs that Whatever help that person provides is not going to do it. He is not going to do it. Um, <clears throat> something else I want <clears throat> to mention before we uh, get to our next segment. And again, um, after the next segment, we are, of course, going to go back to the news of the day and um, taking your calls. But I, ju- I stumbled across this. This was from the uh, Kansas City Star. It is, you know, Jason Kander was a huge Democratic star, a real up-and-comer. And he was, for a time, considered a solid Democratic presidential hopeful. I heard him speak in person one, and he's, you know, very charismatic. I mean, you hear this guy speak, and you want to help him do whatever it is he wants to do. At seemingly the height of his political power, he made the announcement that he had been suffering from PTSD and that he was going to get treatment for it and that he was going to drop out. 
um, go away from public life. I've read, uh, he wrote a book about that experience, and the, PDS, the PTSD he was experiencing was harrowing, was absolutely harrowing from his time in Afghanistan. As a matter of fact, he was with a group that went out to the various villages, and um, after he left, the mission that he and his fellow soldiers had been on was eliminated because it was felt that it was just too dangerous. They weren't going to do that anymore because it was just um, putting people too much at risk. Um, but Jason Kander did not forget the people he worked with, the Afghan people he worked with during his time in the country. And when our withdrawal started to happen and things started to collapse without any fanfare, Jason Kander got together with some other folks to try to put together a private rescue mission. The Kansas City Star is now telling this story. They posted the original story two days ago. Untold story revealed Operation Bella and how Kansas City's Jason Kander helped save 383 lives. And it details this mission to help the people who had helped the U.S. government or had done other things so that they would run afoul of the Taliban, how they and their families and their relatives and their children in this incredible, something that reads like a movie plot about chartering a huge airplane and different people getting different groups of Afghans to um, together. They staged, they wanted, they couldn't let the people talk to one another just in case the Taliban got to one of these families. They didn't want the entire mission exposed. Finally, after red tape and logistical problems, Finally, they were able to what they thought they were going to get this plane. It was going to land at the airport. They had figured out how to get papers uh, so that when people went through the Taliban checkpoints, you know, once they were like on the airstrip, they would be safe. But there were multiple Taliban checkpoints and they had to have the right papers. And they got everybody together at a hotel. They rented this big ballroom and pretended that everybody was there for a wedding. And it was just a place to keep the families together and safe. What was supposed to be for less than a day before the plane landed and they got to the airport, they ended up spending almost three days camping out on the floor of this hotel at this pretend fake wedding. And then they were moved and, you know, went through the Taliban checkpoints. They got the paperwork to get onto the tarmac. They got on the plane. The plane made one stop and then another stop and another stop because the plane couldn't fly directly to the United States. 
It is an amazing story. I strongly suggest you don't um, it's not behind a paywall. Go to the Kansas City, Kansas City dot com. Um, and it is there's a, um, an updated version in today's edition. Untold story revealed Operation Bella, which was named after Jason Kander's daughter. That's why they called it Operation Bella. There's a play at Northlight Theater that gives you a sense of what it was like for some of these families as they debated whether or not it was safe for them to try to leave the country. We are going to talk to the director of that play when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This arts and politics segment is sponsored by Northlight Theater in Skokie, and I am happy to welcome director Hamid Degani, who uh, is the director behind a play that is there at Northlight right now, Selling Kabul. And from the program, here's part of the director's statement. In these times of global conflict and tragedy, I often ponder the role of theater in fostering world peace. Well, I would say, having seen this show and just been blown away by it, that the way you foster world peace is by reminding people that world events, political events, all boil down to people and relationships and family. And that is what this play shows us. Hamid, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I took away from from this incredible production a sense of of what people not only went through but what people are probably going through the the oh, we should probably i'm assuming everyone knows what we're talking about here uh, but the you, describe what the play revolves around let's let's start with the basics yeah, uh, so it's uh, it's a play about Tarun and uh, Afghan interpreter, someone who has worked with uh, American troops as a translator, and he's waiting for to receive his visa, special immigrant visa, like many other, like twenty thousand um, Afghan interpreters uh, uh, worked uh, with uh, American troops, and they were all promised to. Uh, be given uh, this kind of visa, um, and then, uh, then because of that withdrawal in, uh, of American troops, some of them left behind, and they are fearing of their life. They are hiding from Taliban because Taliban is hunting people um, down uh, who has worked with uh, uh, Americans. So this is a story about uh, Tarun and the consequences of that situation and that withdrawal, and we see the, their, his family and all the people around him who are dealing and navigating, navigating this situation. I thought that while the play represents many um, observations and points of view, there was this um, unifying theme of, of love and the deep love you have for family and what you will do if that family is put at risk, which is really... Uh, a theme that applies to pretty much any age and any culture in time. Uh, and how did, did you have um, any input in casting this play? Because I have to tell you, I thought the actors were amazing. Yeah, thank you so much. Yes, they're all amazing actors. I, I did my best to find the people who are culturally 
connected to um, you know people in Afghanistan and root for that, those um, events, you know those people uh, um, in that region. And yes, love is the big theme of this play, and it, love against death or evil. You know, it, this is the love that um, drives people moving forward and helping them. Th- making them to to sacrifice to protect each other and it's it's something universal all of the people all the family members try to protect each other no matter where where they are if they are in uh, Skokie um, Chicago or if they are in Kabul Afghanistan when there is no one uh, else to protect you when there is no government and the danger the evil is outside behind the door door uh, you do whatever you can. You try your best. You sacrifice many things to protect your loved ones. And that's something that I think could connect the American audience to mm-hmm. people in Afghanistan who are dealing and suffering from the situation still. And that humanizes people in Afghanistan. You know, this play does something beautifully that moves uh, and goes beyond the surface layer of the news about Afghanistan, you know, something that you don't get to see and hear enough uh, because of uh, always news about suicide bombings, you know, war, and those are all surface. But we go inside the household, we see people, as you said, we see the relationship between people, brother and sisters, uh, a neighbor, you know, I think that's something that can connect us. And yeah. I, I I agree. That was, you know, and while I was watching the play, I assume this is part of what you wanted me to be thinking. I kept thinking, what if I was in his shoes? What if I was in her shoes? Would I, how would I react? Would I, would I go to those lengths um, to protect a person? Um, and I, and that was one of the things that, you know, sometimes I, I see a lot of theater and sometimes I'm, I can be interested and moved and touched, but it's like watching other people live through something. With this, I kept thinking to myself, if it ever came to it, what would I do in this situation? Which one of these characters would I be? I mean, the, the, the sister, um, uh, I, Afaya, who is so, yeah, who is so, so loving and patient with her somewhat hot-headed brother, uh, Tarun. And there were times when I was thinking, ah, just, just stop being so nice to him, you know, kick him out, you know? <laughs> yes. And usually I don't feel quite so personally touched or personally involved in a, in a story. That was, that was really surprising and enjoyable for me. Yeah, exactly. That's the brilliance of this play. You know, it, it, at the end of the show, you, when you come out, you, it leaves you with thinking and meaningful thoughts about Afghanistan, people in Afghanistan. But when you're watching it, you're seeing relationships, you're seeing people, you know, in similar situations that you could be, you know, exactly. It's the, you can easily root, uh, identify with them and say, oh, what's what would I, uh, I would do if I was in their shoes? And, um, yeah, because it's not uh, politics or war is not um, in front of your eyes. You know, you go mm-hmm. to the relationship and love. Yeah. You are from Iran. 
you were born there. You spent at least um, part of your early years there. Tell me about that and how that influenced the way you directed this play. Yeah, I was born and raised in Iran. I came here uh, uh, to the U.S. in 2018 to continue my education at Northwestern uh, University and do a MFA uh, in directing program. And um, when I was in Iran, we had lots of lots of uh, Afghan refugees living with us, our neighbors. We we had a lot of friends, Afghan friends, and because. Afghanistan has been dealing with wars for the last four decades, more than last uh, 40 years, and many of them uh, took refuge in Iran. So I would always see them, you know, and our language is uh, the same. We all um, speak the same language uh, with different dialects. So we culturally, we share a lot of things in common. Uh, so I felt so much connected. You know, when something bad happens in Afghanistan, it feels like home. Something bad happens in my home. So culturally and emotionally, I was so uh, invested in this play. I I tried my best to uh, make this show as authentic as possible based on what I understand from their, their culture and their situation. But at the same time, we had two cultural consultants, two Afghan women. One of them just left Afghanistan after Taliban took over Kabul, um, and her um, brother was actually a, a, an Afghan interpreter. And so she lived exactly the same experience and the same uh, story. So... Um, my goal was to just really make this show as authentic as possible and make it um, create an experience for the audience, for American audience, to see both themselves be able to connect themselves to this family, this household in Afghanistan, but at the same, at the same time show some cultural specificity and authenticity to see the unique way of Afghan uh, family living. Mm -hmm. As the director, I mean, I know that there is a playwright and that um, the play gives certain directions of what things are supposed to look like and where things are supposed to be. You said you wanted to make sure there was authenticity. And as a director, what do you bring to the actual physical production um, to try to infuse it with whatever you feel it needs uh, to come alive? So as a director, you start a show with a point of view. You know, you read the play and you think about it, you feel it, you have some punches, but at the end you have to come up with certain point of views or one point of view um, at least. And then kind of guide everything, all the aspects of a show toward that point of view. For me, it was this authenticity in terms of culture and also the theme of um, the danger outside this household, the fear and the the tension um, surrounding these people. And... uh, so, but at, and the rest, you have a, like a, it, that point of view becomes your guideline in terms of how people behave, you know. So I 
did a lot of research about even how people sit, uh, walk, or how is their body language uh, of people of Afghanistan, you know, the way that uh, people express themselves, uh, the way that they wear uh, clothes. Uh, all of those uh, come from that point of view and looking for that authenticity and also the tension that uh, surrounds these uh, people. Um, I know that in addition to being a director, you've also written plays and you are also an actor yourself. As a director, is it hard? I, I've always heard actors say that they prefer to be directed by somebody who has acted before because it's um, they, they speak the same language or it's easier to convey what they want. But as a director who's also an actor, were there times when you thought, man, I should be in this play? <laughs> Oh, my God. I, I'm so lucky that I have great, great actors. You know, I'm sure they're much better than me. But as a director, you always have some ideas, some images that you can see them fully in your mind. But the audience, uh, your creative team, your uh, actors, your designers, they don't have that image yet in their mind. So you have to be patient and you have to find a way to transfer um, those images, those ideas, translate those ideas for them so they can also see that, you know. So if, for example, an actor, when you run a scene for the first time, um, do it differently, you know, than what you have imagined, it's because, not because they're bad actors, but because they don't yet, uh, they don't, they can't see the image that you have in, mind, in your mind. So it takes time, and that's part of the process to, and, and at some point, after uh, rehearsal, after the show begins, I'm sure the actors uh, know much better the play, much more uh, better <laughs> than me. Uh, yeah, it, that's true about because they have lived the characters. So that's the time that I give them the baton and say, go, go explore and further develop it. Yeah. Well, I think you're probably being very generous there, but I'm sure your actors appreciate that. Um, and I don't, I don't know if you know this or not, and I'm telling this to the audience as well. Starting this coming Monday, all every day, all next week on my show, we're going to give away a pair of tickets to this production of Selling Kabul at Northlight Theater in Skokie. And the great thing about Northlight Theater, and I know I've said this before, if you live in the northern suburbs, it's really easy to get to. It's just basically a couple of streets away from Old Orchard. And if you live in the city, again, you know how easy it is to get to Old Orchard. You jump on the Kennedy, you jump on the Edens, and you jump off. It is really easy, whether you live in the city or whether you live north of the city, um, to get to the Northlight Theater. And I'm so pleased that we are going to help promote this wonderful show that merges humanity politics and history into this terrific production um and i and i really hope that uh, we can do everything in our power to get some um to get some audience members in the theater for you hamid thank you so much yes i promise that everyone would have a fulfilling experience by watching this show yes it is a wonderful show, and Hamed Degani is the director. I'm so pleased that you were able to chat with us um, this uh, day when, before we uh, start our contest next week to give away some seats.
Thank you for so being much. here. Thanks for having Thank you yeah. so much. Bye. And again, this uh, Arts and Politics segment sponsored by Northlight Theater in Skokie. So uh, stay tuned starting Monday. Two tickets uh, given away every day, all next week. And um, it's a terrific show. It really is. It's 90 minutes straight through, no intermission, bing, bang, boom. And it's terrific. And it is so human. It, it really it really is a very, it's a story about family is what it is at the bottom line. Okay, we are going to take a break and get back to our usual Friday of chit-chatting with you, the listener, and uh, talking about the news of the day when uh, we come right back after this. All the money you need for retirement, all the income, every month, guaranteed. That's Secure Future Investor, an indexed annuity tied to growth in the stock market, but without any risk of loss ever. It's guaranteed money for life income. No matter how long you live, call 888-863-9022, 888-863-9022. Sponsored by GP Agency, Inc., Raleigh, NC. Licensed in all states. Performance may vary. Consult your financial professional before making an investment decision. Alexa, play WCPT. WCPT from TuneIn. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And we are back to talking about the news of the day, the news of the week, and taking your calls. Uh, Steve from the Gold Coast has been waiting patiently uh, to join our conversation. Hello, Steve. How are you today? Hello, Joan. Happy Friday. So first, let me begin by saying I called AT&T, so if I lose you, I have no (laughs) idea what to turn to any longer. (laughs) Apparently, they've rerouted my signal, so um, there's some towers out downtown, so... That could be it, but who knows? Um, secondly, uh, kudos to uh, your guest earlier in the week, uh, Professor Hershey. I met her almost 35 years ago. I was I mean, going to ask you about that because you asked her about that. Yeah, yeah. how cool. I, mean, I met I met her almost 35 years ago, and I, I mean, I had no idea. This woman's 80 years old, if not more. I mean, kudos to her because she's, she's out there doing this work at her age. I remember her, and she was no spring chicken at the time uh, when I met her. So, again, great work that you're still out there making that kind of a contribution at your age. I thought it was possible that her daughter or someone else in her family had become a professor. So, again, you know, my my apologies to her. I wish she were here. But, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I've, I've fine, talked to her a few times. She's always great. Yeah, yeah. So, and then beyond that, I mean, this story is just bizarre. I mean, when I heard it, I heard the tail end of it, and I said, okay, wait, did they just conflate some sort of commentary that was separate from what the investigation entailed? I mean, when was the last time you heard a prosecutor say basically what they call no bill? So, in other words, we're not going to pursue uh, any charges. We're not going to recommend uh, charging or filing a case against someone. Oh, but by the way, if we were to do so, this is the defense they might offer up. You know, I mean, what mm. a, how ridiculous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that is, it is beyond the purview of, of your office, beyond the purview of what you are, of your task with regard to this. But again, we all know what this person's background is. They are a Trump yeah. appointee. So they yep. decided to, okay, yeah. Quite obviously, there's nothing here. And if they were to say that there were something here, then they would bolster the case against Donald Trump because his crime is far more egregious. So obviously, they can't go anywhere with it. It was just a way to sort of tell Americans, well, we're going after Biden as well. Well, turns yes. out you can't really go after somebody who didn't commit a crime. <laughs> so, But we, we have to be able to poke him somehow after admitting that there's no real crime. Okay, we'll we'll go ahead and make the case that well he probably did this because he's a senile, dotty old you know guy. 
I mean, come on. Uh, so, you know, but they'll run with this on conservative radio, on Fox and everywhere else for as long as they can. Yeah. And somebody pointed out the uh, the interesting conundrum, you know, uh, a Republican in this case, even though he did use this report to trash or disparage Joe Biden, he couldn't have recommended prosecution because that undercuts Donald Trump's argument of uh, presidents are immune. They have immunity. So which is it, Republicans? So um, Mr. Exactly. Herr was kind yeah. of boxed in by that. <laughs> couldn't happen oh, to a nicer guy. I mean, you know, they, yeah, they, they want their they want to have their cake and eat it, too. So, you know, it, it's OK. There, there are actual cases against Donald Trump, <laughs> you know, because we recognize that there are serious violations on his part while he was president and before and after. So the, the Republicans need to throw something against the wall so that anything can stick so that low information voters uh, can get the perception. Of, well, you know, they're going after everybody, both Biden and mm-hmm. Trump. You know, it's pretty much it's the same thing. No, it's not the same thing. You know, yeah. uh, I mean, just kind of, you know, pick up a newspaper, pick up a textbook, maybe, you know, tune in and, and figure out what's going on in the world around you. But that's they're counting on the idiots, you know, who will turn out or the ones who believe that there's a giant deep state conspiracy to get Donald Trump. Yeah. Because, as you pointed out and others, there are people who are just never going to believe that Donald Trump is guilty of anything, that he is just being persecuted this giant plot of conspirators. Well, that's what he keeps telling them. And they and they just believe what he says. Um, you know, the, yeah. the glorious low information voter who, um, you know, I, this was really brought home to me yesterday when I was talking to, um, you know, um, political observer, strategist, author, uh, Rachel Abitikoffer, because um, she said, you know, the vast majority of the people aren't going to be like looking into this, reading about this, having opinions about this. They just don't care. They're not paying attention. And um, we got to remember that, too. And that's why I think Donald Trump is in some respects so darn effective is because he counts on that. He counts on the fact nobody's his followers aren't going to fact check him. Come on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But what we have going for our side is that that given his base, okay, he's he's got a lock on the Republican Party. But what does that mean in terms of a national election? But we already went through this once. It's not as if his base has grown since then. And what are they going to run on? They, they were hoping to run on an economy that's collapsing. That didn't happen. You know, I mean, every time we get good news, the, the people over at Fox Business have to scratch their heads because they have to concede that, that the economy is doing well. While the, other, while the people over at Fox News are like, okay, how can we spin this so that it's not? So now the, the, this, is, this is possibly the greatest one of all. The, the current uh, prosperity that we're experiencing in the American economy is a function of the policies that Donald Trump introduced years ago that are only now filtering in. So mm-hmm. years it was supposed to be a collapsing economy. But absent that, now we want to take credit for it somehow. I mean, yeah. God, uh, how convoluted can you get at the intellectual gymnastics that you have to pull off to believe this? <laughs> exactly that. That's what it is. It's an exercise in mental gymnastics. And what the Republicans have learned is that even if they say something that is just absolutely pretzel logic, if they all yell it loud and long, people are going to start to absorb it. You know, that's the whole idea behind the big lie. doesn't matter how absurd it is. You say it over and over and over again. And people start to oh, think, yeah. well, and, and, you know, there must be something there. You know, everybody's talking about absolutely. it. Everybody's saying it must be something there. 
Yeah, and it's predicated upon, as we pointed out, the ignorance of a lot of American people. There are a lot of American people who believe that until prices return to what they were in 2019, the problem of inflation has not been solved. That's not the way economics works. I guarantee that you are making more than you were in 2019. That's the balancing act. So, no, prices are never going to go back to 20. Well, looks like Steve's got to make another call to AT and T. Sorry, about, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, let's go back to the phone lines. Gus is calling in from Logan Square. Hey, Gus, how are you today? How are you doing, John? Doing great. It's been a while since I've called the show. Uh, yeah, I don't do it. Does the opposite? If anything, it's like the same thing when Trump was president and they were looking into him over his son Hunter. If anything, people are going to sympathize and feel sorry for him. Because you think about it, you had Merrick Garland, who shouldn't be there in the first place, hiring mm-hmm. a special prosecutor from the Republican Party. So it was going to be very prejudicial when it was written. Yep. And if anything, I mean, they had a, a pundit yesterday from MSNBC said it. It's the same thing as Mike Pence. You could complain that, you know, they forgot something or were incompetent, but it wasn't malicious, whereas Trump, was thoroughly malicious and criminal. And another issue is, you know how many people, and I, I'm a sympathetic role, you know how people have older relatives? I have an uncle, uh, Joe Biden's age, and he forgets all the time. If anything, I we everybody's going to sympathize with him because he's tried his best. I think he's been too conciliatory with these Republicans because, let's be frank, they don't believe in government. They don't believe in reality. But, yeah, he it has shown that uh, the Democratic Party and the president have tried to be the grown-ups in the room and have uh, governed responsibly as possible, but you have an opposition that's just not going to listen to them. Yeah. 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 But, uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think if anything, this, this helps them. They go, yeah, they were just being jerks. And come on, a 300 page report, it wasn't that. Yeah. 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 Oh, it was over 400 pages, by the way. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was over 400 pages. And as I said at the beginning of the show, it starts off with this big headline about how. You know, Donald Trump is like this, you know, is uh, willfully kept documents. And then on page 215, it says there does not appear to have been any willful intent to uh, keep classified documents. So which is it, Mr. Herr? Which is it? Well, once again, if the Republicans try to have their cake and eat it, too. But the reality is they're going to lose because between ridiculous stunts like this and the horrible decisions done by the Supreme Court, it has activated a lot of people. I, I got a neighbor who hasn't voted in his life. He just registered last week. It's, it's nonsense. <sighs> what, uh, what's, uh, what's your neighbor been telling you? Well, what motivated them to get out and register? Uh, when they uh, the Dobbs decision and gutting the Clean Air Act, mm-hmm. he's like, wait, wait a minute, how can you not? That shouldn't be a partisan issue. We all yeah. need to breathe to live. Yeah. And I can tell you, Gus, old farts like me are not going to sit back <laughs> and let somebody take away our Social Security payments. Okay, that, well, them's fighting I, words. <laughs> well, I, I won't let them. In full disclosure, I'm running as a delegate for the third congressional. Well, good for you. Yep. I'll be the last name on the delegate list. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye out for you then. (laughs) I got a break for news, but thanks for the call, Uh, Gus. um, We are going to be right back after the news. 
Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. And we are back. We are back taking your phone calls, talking about the news of the day. Uh, let's go right to the phone lines. Our good friend Bobby is reporting on the news from Indiana. Hey, Bobby, what's new? Uh, Joni, listen carefully. Yes. Did you hear that? I did. Yeah, well, that's, that's old Bobby doing a Joni. <laughs> because uh, Jimmy was hot when he called in today, and he had every damn reason to be. Uh, I, I've been uh, building up some steam over the week, and it isn't because of the weather. Yeah. Uh this latest thing is, is really, I didn't think they could, but they did. Uh, I thought the Ukraine was the topper, but um, maybe it is. But this thing with Biden, I um, don't know. I'm not the smartest. Uh, uh, you know, they talk about the uh, the dim bulb in the string. I don't even have a filament. But mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know what's interesting? I, when I talked to um, former Illinois Congressman Joe Walsh a while back, you know, Joe Walsh, before he was uh, um, uh, a cable news commentator for CNN, he was a radio host, he was a congressman, and he said, I knew Joe Biden back in the day. The Joe Biden you see now, the guy who sometimes mumbles and stumbles his words, he said, that's who he's always been. He was like that 20 years ago. You know, and like I, people I, are suddenly discovering this and attributing it to old age. Hey, I remember. Hey, talk about m- memories. I do remember that. And uh, but <laughs> uh, when 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 I the first thing that came to speaking of memory, <laughs> the mm-hmm. first thing that came to my mind when I heard this was this is another GB Comey takedown. Exactly. That's exactly what it is, Bobby. And by the time, by the time Comey put his tail between his legs and said, "Oh yeah, there's really nothing there," the damage had been done. That's the game. That's Mm -hmm. the game. And I will go to my grave that that's what they're trying to do to Biden. Yes, I don't. And I hope that it blows up in their face. Yeah, well, I hope so, too. We'll wait and see, but, uh, oh, I tell you, it, it's it's a load, and I think uh, I think everybody, uh, <laughs> the kids on our block, have got it figured out. Uh, hopefully, uh, the word uh, will spread, and yeah. it will backfire on them royally. Well, I, the, think, uh, I think that's possible. We had the White House counsel... Ian Sams coming out and condemning it, Kamala Harris, um, in no uncertain terms. And there's actually um, an editorial in the Washington Post on it today. 
And it said, you know, Robert Herr made the right choice in concluding that criminal charges are not warranted. The same cannot be said of Herr's depiction of what he presented as Biden's enfeebled cognitive condition, a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. The report's extensive discussions of that issue were not merely gratuitous. They constituted an egregious transgression of prosecutorial boundaries. I hope this blows up in their face big time. Well, I will I will leave you with this. Biden's what, 81? I think he's just 80, but, you know, potato, potato here. I am I am 72. I wish to high heaven right now that I had his memory. That's all I can say. Well, I've got to tell you, I'm also like you, younger than Joe Biden. And when, you know, when I look at his schedule, because I'm on the White House um, press list and every day they send me a memo about his schedule. And I was thinking to myself recently, maybe it was just during his second term, but I can remember the Obamas having all these state dinners and they had all these, you know, musicians come to play and there was dancing and there was singing. I haven't seen Joe Biden. Um, maybe there've been like two state dinners. For instance, he's talking to the German uh, chancellor today. Perfect occasion for a big state dinner and some entertainment. But Biden doesn't do that. Biden lives and breathes legislating and politics. That's that's his um, that's all he cares about. And I see his schedule on a daily basis. And just reading that document, Bobby, makes me tired. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think uh, I think uh, I think they're full of it with this. And I hope uh, I hope enough people realize that. Yeah. And the one last little tidbit. Um, the last remnant from our big snow mm-hmm. uh, uh, finally got cleaned up uh, this Wednesday when they finally caught up with our recycle pickup. So we are now back to normal. <laughs> Yay. I was worried about you thinking of you snowed in, running out of groceries, <laughs> having to eat the family dog. <laughs> No, that wasn't uh, no 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 biggie, no biggie, no biggie. Yeah, so, uh, good well, to anyway, hear it, Bobby. We're, we're back. We're back to normal, and you have a good weekend. And uh, oh boy, I'm sure there'll be uh, plenty hit the fan next week. Yeah, I think so too. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks for the call. And um, just a programming note. I mean, I took that break to talk to the director of the Selling Kabul play at Northlight Theater. So we are going to extend the time when we take calls till four o'clock today. Usually we uh, at three thirty, we kind of wrap it up and, and talk to some guests. But we are going to continue to take your calls until four o'clock today. Um, Bobby and I were just, you know, talking about this report that I hope um, blows up in the face of Republicans, where even the Wall, uh, Washington Post, the op-ed is by Ruth Marcus, who's an associate editor there. And 
just like Kamala Harris, just like the White House counsel, you know, she describes this report as an egregious transgression of prosecutorial boundaries. There was a lot in there that was completely subjective and completely unnecessary. We made reference to uh, the White House counsel, Ian Sams. Uh, I want to share with you a little clip from uh, part of uh, a very lengthy news conference that Ian Sams gave earlier. Listen to this. Unfortunately, the gratuitous remarks that the former attorney general talked about have naturally caught headlines in all of your attention. They're wrong and they're inaccurate and they obscure a very simple truth that I want to repeat one last time. Since I know it's hard to wade through 400 full pages. One, the report lays out example after example of how the president did not willfully take classified documents. The report lays out how the president did not share classified documents with anyone. The report lays out how the president did not knowingly share classified information with anyone. On page two, which I know you all read, the report argues that president willfully retained materials. But buried way later on page 215, the report says, and I quote, there is in fact a shortage of evidence on these points. 200 pages later. Put simply, this case is closed because the facts and the evidence don't support the theories here. The gratuitous comments that respected experts are saying is out of line are inappropriate. And they shouldn't distract from the fact that the case is closed and the facts and evidence show that they reached the right conclusion. There you go. The facts and the evidence show they reached the right conclusion. The question is, for those who are not going to read 400 pages, are they going to walk away with the headlines? It happens more often than you might think. Let's go back to the phone lines. Ron is on the line from Chicago. Hey, Ron, how are you? Oh, very well, very well. Um, the uh, Republicans uh, think that uh, uh, President Biden is old and feeble-minded. Well, the best way to prove that is to have a TV presidential debate, Mr. Biden and Mr. Trump. And hmm. the, Republicans, the Republicans will probably say, oh, he's... Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. There's no way he's going to do everything in his power not to debate Joe Biden. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm just curious as to when it finally does get. Well, you know, part of the reason. Let me back up a second. It, weeks ago, it was floated that the Republican National Committee was going to put out a press release that said President uh, President Trump is so far ahead, nobody can possibly catch him. So we're just going to do away with all of the remaining Republican primaries and declare him to be the presidential nominee. There was a draft that said just that, that was um, being circulated. Donald Trump said to them, don't do that. Because he wants to go and he wants to win all of these primaries, one after the other, because it makes him look more like a winner and 
it delays the amount of time where he actually has to go head to head with Joe Biden. It's like I said, the guy's street smart. He knows how to put himself in the best possible light. And when it does finally become inevitable that it's him and Joe Biden, I think he's going to um, I think he's going to decline to debate just like you predicted. And I'm just curious as to what reason he'll give. Um, And I'm sure he'll come up with something that at least in his own mind sounds legitimate. Army. Well, oh, bone spurs. Yeah, I can't oh, yeah. debate. Bones. I have bone spurs. <laughs> yeah. Forgot about that. No, if, he, uh, if uh, Mr. Trump ever gets on the stage with the TV lights, his tail uh, will be wilted and his orange makeup will be running down his face. It will not be pretty. Yeah, and he won't be able to get away with that. Remember how when he was debating Hillary Clinton and he went away from his podium and kind of started floating behind her? It was the creepiest, weirdest thing that I've seen in a long time. Hillary has said uh, that she knew what he was doing and she was trying to decide if she should call him out on it or not. But she also knew that being a woman that if she called him out on it, that there would be people that, who would say, oh, look, she can't take it. You know, look at her. She's being crabby and, and bitchy and all these other things. And so she decided to ignore it. And I don't know, 2020 hindsight, I just think she could have turned around and said, what are you doing? What, what are you doing? You know, I mean, I think if she'd have, she could have done it, if she could have done it with humor, I think she could have diffused him and the situation, but, you know, 2020 hindsight is perfect. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Ron. Uh, Appreciate the call. Um, Our good friend Roosevelt is on the line. Hello, Roosevelt. How are you today? Hello, Joan. Thank you for taking my call and hope you have a nice weekend. You too. Okay. Well, let me tell you how I started my day today, around okay. 5.20. All right. Uh, can I mention the station and the knuckleheads that I, lis- that I was listening to? Uh, well, uh, if names? you feel like you need to, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I tune in to 5.60 a.m. Charles Thomas, you know who I'm talking about, ABC7 Chicago, was hitting for uh, me, Jacobson. That other knucklehead was there, uh, W-I-N-D. Hmm. And, of course, everything was about Biden's mental condition. He doesn't have the uh, capability to stand trial, that type of garbage. Hmm. Right? So you had all these callers. Actually, they were fed the, the script. So you had all these callers saying uh, he, he's wearing diapers, all this and that, this, that. So so I called, okay? And I said to the producer, because they're, you know, they're screening me. So I said, is that like when Trump couldn't recognize Eugene Carroll and mistakenly pointed to his wife or vice versa, <laughs> either way, right? Well, that famous uh, video where his, uh, I believe his uh, lawyer was the one that, 
was uh, asking him the questions. Can you point out to uh, E. Jean Carroll? And he distinctly pointed out to his wife, or like I said, vice versa. So I told that to the producer. Eight callers. They never put me on the air. Gee, I'm shocked. Okay? Yeah. So that's how I started. Now, next was the Spanish station I listened to, and I always call every day. Lady that runs the show started saying that Trump looks more uh, in health the way he walks. That Biden, when he walks, he's like he has trouble walking. Okay. Oh man, I was getting furious. I was burning up. <laughs> and then, and then she said that uh, he mistakenly that what you, you just mentioned that he mistakenly said, you know, that that he didn't remember his. Uh, son's death and all this and that because that guy, her, to his name, her? Yeah, H-U-R. Yeah. And he had asked him and all this and that and all this and that. So then, I, so then all these callers called and typical stuff, you know, guy says, well, uh, you know, if you think about it, people that are over eight years old, you know, they go out got getting license and, and they have trouble seeing the road and the signs and at night and all this and that. So then I called, and I told the lady, oh, man, I was so mad. I was so mad. I told the lady, have you ever seen Trump walking other than when he's at the the rallies more than six feet? And she goes, no, but he plays golf. I go, I'm glad you mentioned golf. But when he plays golf, he's always on that cart in that little car, and the, you know. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen him walking from hole to hole? She goes, no. So there you go. I go, I've seen Biden riding a bike. Have you ever seen uh, Trump ride a bike? No. There you go. I go, now, another thing, as far as remembering, I go, what about the the time when he couldn't remember his own, you know, he pointed out to his, Agent uh, Carroll pointed out to his, he goes, oh, I remember that. I go, see? So there you go. I go, as far as these two guys, one is 80, the other one's close to 80. They both forget. I go, this guy, Trump, he's made more bumbles and stumbles with his words than Biden. Go, check your, your, I go, and what about the time now that, so I told her, as far as physical, what about the time that he was walking down a ramp and he had to hold on to the, the general's arm? That happened in June. Yes, and remember he point. took those little mincing steps, like yeah, a couple yeah. of inches each time? And then I read an article, New York Times, where they say they were concerned at the time he was 74. Okay, and they were concerned about his health because he was having trouble walking down the thing. What about the time when he, I told her, what about the time that he held on to that uh, half uh, glass of water with two little hands like oh a squirrel? Oh, my God, yes. What about the time? What about that? Did that look good to you? I go, wh- I go what about the time where he, he couldn't remember uh, he couldn't remember his own son's name. I go, he's made so many mistakes. Mm-hmm. I go, but here's what I did. Here's what I didn't like about that press conference. If you want to call it a press conference. One thing you have mentioned, Joan, is Biden himself got mad. Almost said the word P. Uh, he got <laughs> mad because they were accusing him of sharing information. He said it himself. All those papers in his garage were, uh, 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 in other words, they weren't like the papers that, that Trump, he compared them to Trump. Mm-hmm. Trump took them and he took them and he held them for a year. OK, 
okay? And they're all classified, the ones that Trump had. And I told this lady from the show, I, I said, and he had them stacked up to the, to the ceiling in the, in the bathroom in Mar-a-Lago. I go, what about that? Yeah. So the thing that makes I go the thing that makes him mad, which I gave her credit. I go, you're the only one in the, in the media that's mentioned that Trump has made mistakes too. I go, but you got to go beyond that. So as far as him driving, he drove a Corvette, if I remember correctly. You mentioned that a while back. I go, have you ever seen uh, Trump driving? He goes, no, but uh, but he's a rich man, so he hires people. I go, well, then I could say the same thing about Biden. He's the, he's the president of the United States. He doesn't have to drive. I go, see, that's the thing. Tit for tat. I go, but but you guys are keeping. So then a, a gentleman called up. He goes, I'm 79 years old, and this guy is the smartest caller, Spanish or, or English, this guy I've ever listened to. And the guy said, you guys got to cut that out. I go, I'm 79 years old. And when it comes down to the arts, poets, painters, painters to be specific, he said, there's been plenty of painters in years, hundreds of years that have been over 80 years old. And we, we, we put them up on a pedestal because they're the greatest. And that's true. So, the, so people are getting mad on the other side, meaning the people that are over 65, such as myself, because here's the thing. And then I told her this, too. This is what's important. I told her. I don't want him to run a marathon or to drive in a, you know, in a, uh, a car race. I want to, him to use his mind to do what he has done for four years. He has done more for this country than anybody since, I believe, uh, what, Eisenhower, Roosevelt, you name it. So now give me three accomplishments that Trump has done for his four years of, of presidency. She couldn't do it. Yep. The point I'm trying to make, I go, I, I don't want a guy that's going to run laps. I want a guy that has experience, such as Biden, 40, 50, whatever years of experience. And you said it yourself. He's the same Biden. You all said it, you said. So the same guy. He stutters. Well, that's He's according to Joe Walsh. I mean, I wasn't... Um um, I wasn't in Congress at the time when Joe Walsh was a congressman. But every time I have Joe Walsh on, he says the same thing. You know, people talk about what Biden is doing, like somehow it's a it's a symptom of old age. He said Biden has always talked that way. He's always mumbled. He's always stumbled. He said the Joe Biden that he knew over 10 years ago was the exact same Joe Biden that he is now. Only now everybody is paying attention in a way that they never paid attention before. Um, and, yeah. and, and I'm always reminded when Joe said, when Joe Walsh says that, that this is not what we are seeing from Joe Biden is just Joe Biden. It's not um, mm-hmm. Joe Biden fading. It's just Joe Biden. Uh, back to, back to the, the the guy that her you said that is to me he should be fired. It shows lack of professionalism. That shows lack of doing your job. He is not doing your job. He added to it just as like what you said about Comey. Same exact thing. I think uh, Bobby from Indiana said that it's the same exact thing. Same and uh, and notice. He he knew what the effect of his comments were going to be. I guarantee you he knew. He did it on purpose. You don't make those type of comments when you are doing an investigation. Plus, the guy worked for Trump. The, the, the mistake that, that the, the AG, our AG, made, 
is hiring this guy. We're always trying to please the people that are in between, that are undecided, they're always trying to please the mm-hmm. other side. No. No. And Trump would never hire somebody that's a Democrat. Guarantee. Well, one thing I hope you talk about, um, Mr. Robert Herr being shown the door. Um, If I don't think nothing will happen in the next year. But when Joe Biden is reelected, I hope the first order of business is to replace Merrick Garland, Um, because um, I just think he has been the wrong man for this particular job. I'm not saying he's a bad man. I just don't think he is. He doesn't. He has lost his prosecutorial edge. He spent too many years being a judge. And we need somebody who has more of a prosecutor's mindset to do that job and do it well. And Merrick Garland's trying to ignore the politics. Well, you can't ignore the politics, for God's sake. Yeah, and and I guarantee you this, Trump is going to make more mistakes. He's going to confuse people because Trump, in my opinion, in my opinion, there's something wrong with the guy mentally. He cannot connect the dots. He can't even read a teleprompter. Now, you know, Joe Biden is a stutterer. Trump doesn't have an excuse. Back to the picture of his wife and uh, Agent Carroll, because he said he never met her. But there was a picture on that table. Yes. And he, the excuse he used was the fact that it was blurry. He says, well, uh, it's, it's blurry. Yeah, he's it's blurry. Hey, Roosevelt, we've, we've got to. Thank you very much. We've got to get it to a commercial. Thank you so much, my friend, for the Thank call. You. Have a good day. Have a good you weekend. too. And we're going to be back with more calls and more goodness right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Friday, and Friday, as you very well know, is the day we open up the phone lines and take your calls. And that is exactly what we're doing. We're doing it a little longer today uh, because I squeezed an interview in at the top of the show today. We are going to continue to talk and uh, take calls until four o'clock today. And uh, then we're going to talk to a guest and uh, then we're going to chat a little more and then we're going to talk to another guest. And then we are going to move into a glorious weekend where uh, hopefully the weather will be as nice as it is today. So right now, let's go back to the phone lines and talk to WCPT, one of WCPT's Sunday radio host, host of the Kitchen Table Progressives. Uh, Paul is calling in. Hey, Paul, how are you? No, oh, hi, Joan. Uh, I'm fine, thanks. Um, you know, I was thinking about this. Uh, I want to talk about the Supreme Court, but I was just wondering, with, with regard to this thing with uh, the Justice Department, did you grow up in a big family? Well, not my immediate family, but I'm Italian, so the larger yeah, family, yeah, we were a horde. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm just thinking that, you know, we we had four, bo- four boys in our family. And when my mother was 35, I mean, she would say, she would go through all of our names, including the dog and the cat, before she arrived at the <laughs> oh, right My grandmother used to do that. She'd get mad at somebody, and she'd go, she'd go, Ben, John, Mark, James, Tommy, Joe, yeah, you know. Everybody misspeaks. I mean, because they're playing this thing where President Biden was saying, I was talking to the president of Mexico, and he was clearly talking about the president of Egypt. But he's got a border thing going on, too. So we all do this, and I mean... You probably do it on the air. I've done it on the air when I'm going, oh, I wish I 
No, that's fun. You hear it all the time. Everybody does it. I don't care what age you are. Oh, well, yeah. Sometimes I'm talking on the radio and my brain will go, what you just what you just said, what just came out of your mouth didn't make any sense. And I have to (laughs) my brain is like critiquing the fact that I just said something absurd or ridiculous or ungrammatical. And I'm the other part of my brain is going, yeah, I know it. What can I do at this point? Yeah. So the attorney general doesn't want to be an attorney. He wants to be a judge. And those who uh, are judges, I mean, he wants, to, a law, he wants to ignore the politics. But those who are the judges, the justices, they, they, they don't want to ignore the politics. This hearing was just the stupidest thing I think I've ever heard yesterday. That, And I don't know what they're going to do, but um, the one question they didn't ask, and I'm just going to pound on this, uh, is that it's like, okay, they, they want to avoid chaos. What was January 6th? Was that chaos? Yeah. I mean... Yeah. I mean, come on, okay, so, but let's look at it this way. I've heard people say on right-wing radio, well, listen, he's good. we got to have a definitive conviction, Rob. You can't just, uh, Colorado can't just say he's guilty of it. Okay, okay, okay. This is what's on everybody's mind. So why didn't somebody say, well, suppose former President Trump were convicted in the D.C. case. Would that allow the state, either allow them or compel them, to take him off the ballot. So mm-hmm. would it compel them because now it's been a big federal decision? He's been found guilty by a jury? Or would they be compelled to take him off? Or would the ones that wanted to take him off say they could do it? Or in the ones that wanted to ignore it, leave him on? And wouldn't that be chaos? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, there, there are no yeah, answers that, yeah, there are no answers. And they're like, oh, this 14th Amendment, doggone it. Um, this thing's inconvenient. I mean, this could cause chaos. Yet that's what they did in the Bush v. Gore case in 2000. We must, we can't have a one state to determine the election. Oh, wait, well, except unless it's Florida and, you know, <laughs> yeah. George W. Bush uh-huh. would lose, uh, you know, we, we have to make sure that gets, I mean, you know, in that case, uh, if Florida just failed to certify in time, tough. You don't, we don't count your electoral votes. That's it. But that How also that? means that El yeah, Al Gore, Al Gore would have won 267 to 242. Oh, we can't have that. We must have all the votes in. So we rush this thing. We're going to rush this thing through and tell them to stop counting the votes. Otherwise, George W. Bush will be irreparably harmed. I was thinking, what about Al Gore? Won't he be irreparably harmed? Yeah. <laughs> the other way. I mean, this is just ridiculous. So the whole thing, and Clarence Thomas, here's the one I like, is the... Um, why haven't there been any other convictions, uh, you know, about the Fourteenth Amendment before? It's like, like that's kind of like people say. Uh, you say, "Did you take my?" And I was just and so. They said, "Why would I do that?" Oh yeah, you did. Yeah. You took it, right? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> so, why would I do that? Is the yes, I did answer. Uh, why haven't there been any other ones? I don't know. That's the irrelevant question. That's not. I mean, that's not what the attorneys are there to answer about. They're telling here to talk about this case and an insurrection that was chaos. And maybe they want it. Now they're, are they back onto the, what's the definition of an insurrection? What well, we really don't know. Uh, although we do know what words meant, you know, 250 years ago. Well, that word didn't mean that. That it means. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah, they have, but we don't know what insurrection means. They pick means. and choose. And, you know, it's for people like us who are paying attention, it's really obvious, you know, because there was also the argument, well, the 14th Amendment, you know, it was only it was only to do with the Civil War. It doesn't have any meaning 
or any utility beyond that. Well, then why did they put it in? They could have done it. Uh, they could have prevented ex-Civil War leaders from uh, taking power some other way. But they went with a constitutional amendment enshrining this, that if you conduct insurrection, you don't get to hold office. Uh, kind of seems like... Um, would have been a little bit of overkill. And to say, it seems so disingenuous to say, well, they didn't mean it. They didn't mean it to last beyond the Civil War. Yeah, and you know what? To support your point, Joan, there was a, there was the thing called a Civil War pension that was only available to Union soldiers. And as a matter of fact, the Civil War pension, I looked this up on the Social Security website, the Civil War pension, the last of them, was paid out to the survivors, women, because back in, after the Civil War, in the, in the early part of the 20th century, this is where, uh, you know, uh, 12-year-old girls were clamoring to marry, like, uh, ex-Civil War uh, soldiers so they could get hands on their pensions. The last Civil War pension was paid out to a survivor in 1999. Can you believe that? So, no. Yeah, they could have done it by law. They could, they could have said, just like they did with the Civil War pensions, no. The war, uh, the, the war soldiers' pensions only go to the Union soldiers, not to the Confederate soldiers, because that was a insurrection. It was an insurrection. Come on. They seemed to know what it meant, and they wrote it down, and they said, just like you said, they enshrined it into a constitutional amendment so that for all time we would know. Yeah, when people do this, and clearly, it, it, look, even, even when Donald Trump said, uh, when he was at the ellipsis, uh, we're going down to the Capitol, and I'm going with you. We're going to fight like hell. Mm. Okay, so we remember, we always talk about you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater. Well, that standard is actually was replaced in 1969 by what's called the Brandenburg Standard, which is imminent threat of danger. So after, yeah, imminent threat, that's what, that's what incitement means. It has to be imminent threat. Well, he said, we're going down to the Capitol, and I'm going with you, and we're going to fight like hell. Within an hour, a riot broke out at the Capitol. I think that's imminent. I think that qualifies. I think so, too. But and you know what? Not we're not sitting on the Supreme Court, and we don't get to make those calls. And frankly, I, I, while there is certainly a, a going to be disappointment if they rule the way all the Supreme Court ri- uh, reporters believe they're going to rule, which is against this idea, um, I will be less upset than if they decide to take the case about presidential immunity that the D.C. Court of Appeals uh, hopefully brought to an end clearly, succinctly, succinctly, forcefully, and Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully close the door. And if I hear that they are not going to take that case and they're going to let the lower court ruling stand, I will still feel that overall it's a net win. Right, because Donald Trump's not going to win Colorado anyway. It wouldn't make a, a Hill of Beans difference any more than if he was taken off the ballot in Washington State. He's not going to win, <laughs> going to yeah. win here either. Yeah, so I think exactly. that's true. But, uh, you know, so, that, yeah, that's, I guess that's you, you got to just say, okay, let it go. But it will be interesting to... To find out, well, what powers what powers does Congress have? If they don't tell us, how can any of the states or Congress exercise their powers if the Supreme Court doesn't tell them what they are? Gee, I mean, there you go again, being all logical. <laughs> we have to we have to just keep guessing until they oh okay, well okay now this time you got it right, but we're not going to tell you. It's kind of like 
you know, Uncle Funky and his what's in my left pocket type, you know. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> okay. You can talk Thanks, about that Paul. on Sunday. <laughs> I will. Thanks. All right. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Well, bye-bye. Let's go uh, back to the phone lines. Deborah is calling in from the south side. Hey, Deborah, thanks for calling in today. Hi, Joan. It's been a while since I've called, but uh, it's a beautiful day. Yes, it is. Yes. What what taught me so, 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 so much, so, so much, I would want to say, but what really got me moving is when you described how you felt vicariously Hillary Clinton's experience with Trump behind her, mm-hmm. that, that experience, mm-hmm. yeah. I could write books on that, Joan. I was in the Navy. Are you yeah. familiar with Vanessa, Fuerza, Texas? Uh, not Vanessa off the top Diaz? of my head. Please, when you get a chance, Google that. Um, in fact, um, President Biden sent there Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin to discover that there were 18 people in the cover-up of her death. Mm-hmm. However, and I'm glad that that was discovered. It's a horrific thing. I was in the Navy from 87 to 91. But by God, the blood of Jesus, it was not me. It could have been me. But for three years, I've been begging President Biden, and I don't believe his people, the, the, the volunteers, they know my voice. I've called Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday regarding that, that feeling that you were talking about. I've seen that happen to my senior neighbors in the first congressional, and I'm glad he's gone, and the seventh congressional where I'm at now. In fact, one of my, he's no longer with us, K-R-U-K, Philip Cook, he said he knew you, he met, he met you. He's no longer with us. That's what happened to him, like the Tyree Nichols. Yeah, but at any rate, um, the, the I would love to speak with you about this more. But uh, I'll say this, as far as the insurrection and the um, 14th, um, and then, then third, um, how would that go, 14 and 3. Almost three years ago, I heard um, Charles Ellison, Democratic um, um, strategist. I begged President Biden to speak with him, especially that he would be integrity, and he knew how to deal with the crimes. There was another thing I've been begging for the crime, the guns from Kentucky military base into seven congressional and others. Three years, three years. But Charles Ellison spoke about the 14th and the 3th. If, if Biden's people had looked at that, Jack Smith probably could have gotten on that early, early, three years ago. But I'll leave that, and I pray to talk to you one day. Well, I'll pray to you. And the last thing, the last thing, you remember hearing about the, the one-year-old baby supposedly fell off the balcony mm-hmm. at Lake Meadows? Yeah, all of this is connected. I would love to talk to you. Okay, but I, right. I won't hold you and let you get back. Thank you. Don't just say all right because you 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 you're, you're journalist, right? Well, I'm a I'm an opinion person. I'm a commentator now. Okay, okay. Well, the news and uh, there are two sides to the story, but then you always want the truth. So if you want the truth and you want to solve. What's happening in Chicago, I, I think you would want to hear what I have to say. Well, I appreciate the call, Deborah. Major and obstructions of justice. I remember the the, 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 uh, rep- the, the congressional districts, first and seventh. Okay, and I hope to talk to you, Jim. Thanks, Deborah. Thank you for the call. 
Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. Troy is calling in from Forest Park. Hello, Troy. Hello, how, how are you? Can you hear me okay? I can. How are okay, you? Okay, so excellent. So last night, uh, my friend and I, um, I'm friends with an 86-year-old uh, uh, lady friend, and every week we go out and we have uh, tacos and margaritas at a couple different restaurants in the near west suburbs. And uh, we went to a higher-end restaurant that we normally would uh, because of, for whatever reason. And it, it so happens it was a little more crowded than usual, so we decided to sit at the bar. And so, and it was later than usual because I had to work late. So anyway, we're sitting there, and, and uh, so we're listening to Biden, you know, sadly have to defend himself. And there was other people at the bar, and uh, somebody starts to brag about, um, you know, the people were the, the other customers were so uh, untasteful in their comments, you know, towards the TV and towards Biden, and it was and 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 and, and they were going around all these comments that were just, you know, obviously untruthful and closed-minded and mm. everything. So my friend, who's 86 years old. Um, you know, she's, you know, smart as a whip, uh, you know, drives everything. And, uh, she, uh, sort of, uh, weighs into, um, you know, these people, uh, and, you know, basically runs down a list of, uh, you know, Biden did this, Biden did that, what did Trump do? She started asking him questions and I'm like, oh my gosh, you're going to get my butt kicked here. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but no, but it was really, it was really kind of funny because when we started asking some even marginally, I won't say difficult questions, uh, just marginally, they had no logical answer for anything. It was only, oh, just because I believed. And yeah. and one of the guys mentioned he went to some, I forgot which school. Now, my, my friend that I went with, now she owned a wallpaper hanging business for 30 years. She had up, up to anywhere from two to 30 uh, union painters working for her, at, at, you know, going back a, a, you know, a number of years ago. And, uh, you know, I mean, she was thinking wallpaper before I could say wallpaper. And uh, so anyway, um, so she mentioned something to the effect of, uh, you know, well, for all those degrees, you're not very smart, are you? Because if you were, then you would know this, you would know A, B, C, D, and E. And anyway, it was beautiful to see my my 86-year-old friend uh, take on a, uh, wow. a group of uh, so-called educated uh, right-wing knuckleheads. And, uh, and so, what, you know, I wish did, did I they listen to, to her? Did did they did they react? Yes, and if so, how? Well, they, they did listen. Well, because she was talking and making very much sense, and then um, and, and not being um, how shall I say? Uh, the Republicans they can they tend to be so like nasty at times and and so like like distasteful in the you know how they make fun of Biden. I always say Biden because he cannot orate. Doesn't mean he can't communicate. They say you know, they confuse his inability to orate well with a lack of intelligence, which is completely false. And it doesn't it doesn't take a smart person to figure that out. But if you're making that connection that because he doesn't orate well, therefore he's not smart. Well, that means to me you're not smart. You know. Yeah, that's the problem but, uh, with. Um, that's why I complain 
about whoever his speech writers are? Because when you have a lisp, when you are a stutterer, there are certain letter combinations that are harder to say than others. And a really smart support team will try to put together a speech that avoids those letter combinations that tend to make somebody like Joe Biden doesn't stutter, but you can see he slows down when he gets to words that are difficult for him to say clearly. And if you're not familiar with his uh, stuttering, you look at that and you go, why is he talking like that when, um, you know, and I don't think there are the people who are writing his speeches are always giving him the best possible opportunity to look good. Yeah, and and why he even does it so much, I don't know. I remember when I was younger, Ronald Reagan would get up and say, well, here is my person who is in charge of this. And then they would make the speech. And then then he would get up and say, okay, here is my person who is in charge of that. And then they would make their speech, a forceful, persuasive argument, you know. So why yeah. it's beyond me, and especially now with this oh, this this her whatever his name is, just just egregiously unprofessional. Um, that this person would add in that editorial. I mean, who are they to? to well, that's you know, exactly that's exactly what he did. He um, he yeah. editorialized. He used you know he had a mission. Did Joe Biden? take these documents on purpose you know did he um avoid getting them returned did he do something inappropriate with them that was the mission that was the mission not oh he was uh, vague when i asked him what year his son died uh, seriously what were you even saying that for exactly you know but the thing is i'm only 58 uh, going from the refrigerator to my pantry, what I'm going to the pantry for, or vice versa. So, I mean... Yeah, it happens It happens know. to all of us. It absolutely happens to all of us. So, the, the nonsense that... Anyway, but but but, but Joe Biden is, is clearly a skilled problem solver and thinker. He doesn't have to be a great speaker. I mean, it helps if, you, if you're the president that you are, but if you're not, oh, well. But, but yeah. the guy can obviously think through... Um, the, you know, uh, Trump couldn't take his way out of a paper bag, you know. So that's just my two cents. But anyway, well, thank you for your two cents. Thanks. Thanks for calling in. Always a pleasure. Thank you. You too. Have a great weekend. Um, Let's uh, let's go to Melrose Park. John is on the phone lines. Hello, John. Thanks for calling in today. John, it's been a long time. I uh, happy Friday. You too. Happy weekend. Yeah, I love it. So, any event, you know, a couple of your listeners have been listening, and it seems like the the preponderance are saying that Joe Biden is cognitively stable and he's got a good memory. He even stated that yesterday in his speech. Mm -hmm. According, According to the report from this her. He said he's not going to prosecute because of his cognitive decline. Now, here's the question: It can't be. It can't be. It can't be one or the other. It's got to yeah. be. He's either cognitively yeah. inability, uh huh, or 
if that's the case, then he shouldn't be president. If he's not cognitively, he yeah. should be prosecuted. Exactly. So which is it? And like he says at the beginning, um, you know, um, elderly man who um, took the he says in the beginning, like headline, took the documents willfully. And then later in the body of the text said there doesn't appear to have been any decision to take these documents willfully right. or purposefully. Oh, so exactly. Which is it, Mr. Her? Which is it? Did he did he well, do it or did he not do it? Right. And, well, here's the other question, though. This was not addressed, and I think this is very important. It started back 25, 30 years ago when he took that document out of the skiff. That was never even addressed. And unfortunately, his cognitive abilities were very sound at that point in time. So how would you respond to that? Yeah. I know. It's just a, you know, it's a double standard, and we see it. We get irate, but I worry that, first of all, whether or not they see it, his followers don't care. And the people who are, you know, reluctant voters or don't pay much attention, um, do they see it? That's, that's, that's the question. And if they don't, how right. do we, how do we share this information with them? How do we let them know what the choices are in this election? Cause, it is, um, I mean, we've got a lot on the line in 2024. We absolutely do. Well, when you say it was a double standard, are you saying, you know, uh, Biden did not get prosecuted, but Trump did? Or how are you referring well, I'm, to I'm the saying it's a standard? double standard because things that Republicans believe that fellow Republicans can do and say and get away with when Democrats do or say those same things, all of a sudden it's, um, you know, it's a five alarm fire. But when it comes to their own, they've got an excuse. They've got an answer. They can tell us why we shouldn't be paying attention to it. It's just not that important. Don't you see? And uh, I'm yeah. just so tired of it. And I wish more people would um, would be public about it. I wish the New York Times and the Washington Post would start writing more articles about this, um, about the Republican hypocrisy that we see time and time and time again. Well, in terms of, you know, in terms of this situation, the documents, Trump's documents and Biden's documents, they're the same, but some things are different. And, you know, the, the point the point being made is that uh, I see that they did not go to any lengths to prosecute Joe Biden, but they went to extensive lengths to prosecute President Trump. Mm-hmm. So there is a definite double standard there. Joe Biden, in my in my mind, absolutely was wrong taking those documents as a senator, and he does have cognitive abilities running our country. He should stand trial in, in a court of law for these documents. That is an absurd ruling. Um, actually, I think it, what you're saying makes sense, but I would flip it. I think that there is no evidence that he did anything of a criminal nature. In the report, they even specify that Joe Biden was completely cooperative, 
gave them full access, answered all their questions and returned any documents that were found. Donald Trump isn't isn't being prosecuted just because he took classified documents. He was he was given every opportunity month after month after month, request after request after request to return those documents. And even when people from the National Archives showed up, he he instructed his lawyers, tell them they've got everything. And the one lawyer said, well, I don't know that to necessarily be the case. I can't say something to them that I don't know is necessarily true. Oh, just just tell them. Just tell them they've got everything. That's why Donald Trump is being brought to court, because he hid them. He lied to people. He moved them around. He tried to get people to lie on his behalf. Right. And, you know, you never saw right. anything like that from Joe Biden. Never. And I just think that this newest report uh, for whatever vi- uh, viable, valuable information is in it. It's it was a it was what's going to be remembered is how it was a cheap shot. Uh, and what? and I think that's going to be the takeaway. And oops, um, I got to John, I got to get to the news. Thank you for the call. Always enjoyable conversation. We are going to uh, do the news and we are going to be back right after this. Local and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. I'm uh, pleased to welcome to our little program Dr. Nancy Zars, who's a professor of the psychology of terrorism and hostage negotiation. She's at the Chicago School. And sadly, both terrorism and hostage negotiation are two topics that we really need to educate ourselves on. Nancy, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Okay, uh, let's start with Joan Esposito Education Intro 101. <laughs> okay. Let's let's define our terms. How? What is the definition of terrorism? Great question. The FBI defines terrorism as the unlawful use of force or violence against persons or property to intimidate or coerce a government, the civilian population, or any segment thereof in furtherance of political and social objectives. So violence against persons or property to coerce change of a political or social nature. mm Mm-hmm. So that is why what we saw on October 7th qualifies as terrorism, because it wasn't just this wasn't just somebody trying to retake territory or a war that's been going on, um, you know, um, for for years. This was there's an element of intimidation in terrorism. Absolutely. And that intimidation, you need to think about this. If if I threaten something and I've never done it before, that threat does not have much weight. If I threaten something and I did it yesterday or last week or the or the week before, then that threat carries a lot more weight. And if that threat is violence and I am a terrorist organization that engages in violence, That's part of why that threat is so powerful, and it can so intimidate change. Mm -hmm. When we have seen it, it seems effective. Uh, And I say that only because if it were not effective, 
I would imagine that it would, as a as a technique to get what you want, not be utilized as often. But it does seem as if it is effective. Would you say that it is? Sadly, that is the case. And terrorist organizations actually use and modify their tactics based on just that, based on what's effective. So in some places, maybe it's a it's an IED. It's a bomb. In some places, maybe it's flying airplanes into a World Trade Center. In some places, it's hostage negotiation. In some places, it's a combination thereof. So it's all about what is going to be the most effective. And here it wasn't just the terrorist attack on October 7th, which was absolutely horrific. The single largest loss of Jewish and Israeli life since the Holocaust. But it was all. And, 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 you know, I think if I might, sometimes people in America might think, well, 1300 people died on October 7th. But if you think about 9-11, almost 3000 Americans died on 9-11. But what we need to remember is how small Israel is. So proportionately, the fact that 1,300 people were killed in Israel on one day would have been the equivalent of 40,000 Americans dying on 9-11. Yeah. And also... What happened on... Go ahead, sorry. I was just going to say, it's when these horrific incidents occur... It's not a competition, like who wins, like who who lost the most people, who suffered uh, the greatest tragedies. Yes, and that's a great one of the a, a Holocaust survivor that has spoken to my Israel class said to me once, I think it's a profound statement. She said, life is not comparative. It is experiential. And we tend to do that. We want to compare. Well, yours wasn't as bad as mine, so mm-hmm. you don't get to be upset. And really, it's about the experience. What was your experience, and what did that experience mean to you? A great point. But anyway, yeah. my, what I was saying about October 7th, it's not just October 7th. It's the fact that they also took over 100 hostages, and some of those hostages are still being held, what, four months later oh. in monstrous conditions? So it's not just what happened on October 7th. It's what continues to happen with the hostage-taking, and with the terrorist attacks that continue into Israel. You are an expert on hostage negotiation. What is there an overriding principle or technique that is has been shown to be the most effective way to get a hostage-taker to release the hostages or a hostage? Yes. Now, so separate this answer from Hamas, okay? So okay. in general terms, so I was, a, I was a, on a hostage negotiation team for over a decade in the Bureau of Prisons, and I taught it at the graduate level, and I was, I was with the FBI's resource staff on their courses. So in general, what we try to do in negotiations is first and foremost to restore calm, because when emotions are high, judgment is low. And that's not just in a hostage situation. If you think about the last fight you had with a significant other, with a child, you know, when when your emotions are high, most of us, our judgment is low. And so we're not making the best decisions. So part of what a hostage negotiator wants to do is to defuse the situation, to restore calm. Then we want to build rapport. Then we're going to buy some time so that people calm down a little bit so that temper's cool. Then we want to get to the point that we're generating influence. And then finally, we can we can get to behavioral change. Is this the reason why when 
When we see hostage negotiations on television shows, the negotiator is always like, hi, I'm Jerry. What's your name? Yeah. And then we talk, we start chatting. Like literally we're trying to, to, to build some kind of rapport. But if I come in and say, hi, my name is, is, is Nancy, release a hostage. You're going to be like, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't built any rapport and I haven't generated any influence, which is what we need before you're going to modify your behavior. So that's why hostage negotiation is a process. And, and the other thing is we need highly trained expert negotiators. People tend to minimize what's involved. And, you know, people will say to me, oh, I'd make a great hostage negotiator. I'm a good talker. Well, actually, hostage negotiators are better listeners mm. than they are talkers. What about this idea that to be effective in hostage negotiation, you have to figure out what the hostage taker wants or what motivates them? Is that accurate? Absolutely. And that's usually uh, multiple layers. So if you think about it, the hostage taker is going to say one thing, the verbalization. And and, and the image I'd like you to have is an iceberg. So if, if you think about what took down the Titanic, it wasn't the part of the iceberg that was above the water. It was the bulk of the iceberg, which was beneath the surface, that you know ripped a hole in the, in the Titanic, and then it flooded. So, yes, I'm going to pay attention to what you're saying on the surface, but I also want to hear what's beneath the surface, what is not being spoken, because that agenda, that hidden agenda, can be every bit as powerful in terms of, of, of a force with you as whatever it is that you're choosing to stay on the surface. And again, I'm much more likely to get to that if I build some rapport with you. If I show, if I show myself to be an active listener and I get you to open up and you start talking, eventually I'm going to be able to hear both what's on the surface and what's bubbling beneath the surface. You make it sound like it's just so clear, but to me, that would be how that would be such a difficult thing to do um, to 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 have this kind of a calm um, um, rapport with somebody who is doing something so horrible. Um, I mean, yeah. How, how does that? Yeah. Do you just have to like compartmentalize all of your feelings and set them aside and? and be unemotional throughout this process? Well, I, I don't know that we ever get to unemotional, but certainly managing emotions is a pivotal part of hostage negotiation. And as a negotiator, the first emotions I have to manage are my own. I need to be able to manage my emotions to set an example for you and to help you eventually manage your emotions. And so, yes, there's some compartmentalizing, you know, rather than focusing on the horrific thing that you did, I'm focusing on the safety of those hostages, and I'm trying to set aside my emotions and my feelings in order to achieve the safe release of those hostages. Is this why you're right when when governments um, are faced with this situation, is this why oftentimes they'll bring in a third party? Um, you know, two two big governments are at, are at odds. So a third government sits down at the table to try to negotiate uh, a hostage release because the the two, because at that sort of un 
disinterested party is necessary to accomplish this calm, you know, conversation that connects with people? I mean, in a, in a situation where emotions run hot, I could see where a third party could be just what you need. Well, we definitely want negotiators. And, and like myself as a negotiator, I'm essentially a conduit. So the, the goal with a negotiator is that I am not somebody who makes the decisions. So I solicit the information from you. I pass it on to the person who makes the decision. I then package that and, and negotiate back with you again. So we definitely want that negotiator. We don't want the decision makers at the table. But if, if, the, if, if the negotiators can't get together, you know, if, if let's say somebody cannot manage their emotions or, or let's say, you know, Israel is just refuses to give Hamas that level of credibility and they, they cannot be at the table with Hamas, then, yes, they bring in that neutral third party. The problem is that third party needs to be somebody who is or, or, or a party that is to some extent respected on both sides. And it needs to be acceptable to both sides. So it's not necessarily the ideal party. It might be the party that is the most tolerated by the two opposing sides. Do you, do you see what I'm saying there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so Nancy, we need the, to. The bad- we need to take a break. This is this is so fascinating. When we come back, I want to talk to you uh, a little bit more about terrorism and the mental gymnastics or the amorality that has to be present in somebody to commit these kinds of acts. I'm talking to Dr. Nancy Zars, professor of psychology of terrorism and hostage negotiation at the Chicago School. We are going to be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am pleased to be joined by Dr. Nancy Zars, who is a professor of the psychology of terrorism and hostage negotiation at the Chicago School. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the mindset of someone who commits these acts. By all accounts, no matter how the Hamas is treating the hostages they have, the act of terrorism that they conducted involved sexual violence it involved killing children what kind what has to happen to you as a person to allow you to be capable of this kind of violence what is the mindset of a terrorist so the the psychological process is called moral disengagement and if you think about it it's we adapt moral standards, and, and, and that tends to influence our conduct. And then we regulate that with self-sanction. So I decide what it means to be a good person, and then I'm going to do things that, that are in line with how I see a good person acting. What terrorists do is they disengage that inhuman conduct from morality via these psychological processes. And there's a number of them. It could be to, they make violence morally defensible. It's by using particular language, euphemistic language. It's by diffusing responsibility and attributing blame. So it's dehumanization. So if you pick one, I'll be happy to talk about whichever one you'd like me to talk about. Well, let's talk about 9-11. Okay. And, so, what? And, and, and there's something else that I want to talk about, too, because I hear all the time that... Um, 
that someone, a government or a military that's reacting to terrorism has to be careful because they will create more terrorists. You go in and you kill all the leaders of a certain um, terrorist organization. What happens to their sons and daughters? Do those sons get so twisted because of the violence they've lived through that they become the next generation of terrorists? You know, I mean, that's what some people have speculated has happened in Afghanistan. Is that sort of mechanism? Is that is that real that we, you have to be careful? Some people are saying Israel needs to be careful because the way they're marching through Gaza, they are creating the next generation of terrorists because of what the children are living through. Is that something you have seen? Is that documented? Well, there is concern about that. That That is a legitimate concern, which is why you want to have, you, you want to engage in legitimate warfare. You want to use principles of distinction and proportionality. So there are things that in counterterrorism we want to be careful about so that we maintain our sense of of honor, if you will. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. there's something to be said about that. But on the other hand, there still needs to be a response to the inhumane conduct. So what's going on with those folks? So let's talk about the terrorists. The terrorists are, help these people, influence these people, to make violence seem morally defensible. So first they talk about, well, the nonviolent options are ineffective, so we might as well. And they try to justify what their behavior is by saying, well, this over here is inhumane, so we're going to engage in this violence over there. They try to invoke religion or ideology or nation, but, but what research shows is that it's a certain type of person who really wants to be a terrorist, who, who finds some level of satisfaction in that behavior, more so than it's really about religion or ideology, because every major world religion espouses against violence. There is no yeah. major world religion that truly justifies violence. It's a way that people twist religion to try. To, in fact, there was a, the chief rabbi of, of England has a book called Not in God's Name. And he specifically talks about, he, he presents a number of arguments about not trying to use God to justify violence and terrorism. And, you know, the, the, the fact that somebody has a grievance, you know, here in America— we see school violence, we see workplace violence, we see mass casualty violence, and every one of those individuals typically has a grievance. The point is that the grievance does not justify the violence, period. Period. There is no justification for terrorism, for work violence, for school violence, for mass casualty violence. So I, I think that when we start to focus on the grievance, we almost are in some ways trying to figure out, well, can we justify this? If this grievance was, was legit, if this grievance was big enough, does it justify it? No. The answer is a hard no. When you threw out the term moral Sorry. disengagement, does that yes. I want to I want to revisit that because I think that's really important. And it's certainly not a phrase that I've come in contact with before. Does that mean <laughs> when you say disengagement that the person is without morality or they have a morality that can 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 
justify terrorist actions. Talk about moral disengagement a little bit more. Yes. What the terrorist group does to the terrorists, so to those people, is they disengage that that kind of innate morality in an effort to justify the violence. So that can be through language. So think about how language shapes our thought patterns. So if, if the terrorists use euphemisms to mask that terrible act, so instead of saying, well, I'm not a terrorist, I'm a militant. No, you're a terrorist. Words matter. And so you don't hear me using any words other than terrorism to describe these folks. They try to diffuse responsibility. So maybe they, they make the decisions as, as a group so that no one person feels responsible for the violence. Oh, whether it's I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not that I took a hostage. It's not that I set off a, a bomb in a cafe. It's that the group did this. And mm-hmm. the same thing with that collective a- action. And then there's an attribution of blame. So rather than blaming the individual, the terrorist, they blame the victim. It was really the victim's fault. The victim is the one who provoked me. And so I'm going to blame that victim. And so you hear that when you listen to the language, you hear that wording. Then there's this notion of a disregard or a distortion of consequences. So they minimize the injurious effects. And this is especially relevant if the suffering is not visible. So if I set a bomb and then I walk away and I detonate that bomb remotely, I'm not there to see it. Mm-hmm. And the further removed a person is from the end result, the weaker the restraining power. Okay? Mm-hmm. So that's part of it. And, and so when they dehumanize, if, 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 a, if a victim is dehumanized, then it prevents empathy. And it minimizes the effects of human quality. So think about the Holocaust. Think about how the Jews were depicted as rats. And they were depicted as these, you know, greedy, immoral characters. And they were blamed for Germany's, dis, you know, fall. They were blamed for what the negative things that were happening in Germany. And then because of all of that, well, you know what? They kind of deserve this. Mm-hmm. They, they were dehumanized. And so it was easier to be violent against them. Then if we see, and we see this with criminals, we see this with rapists. You know, I worked in federal prisons. I had a rapist say to me, a woman does not, he actually said, I don't think I'm a rapist. And I said, well, I don't think it's a thing. It's a fact. And he was like, well, I don't think rape is a crime. It, it is a crime. And he said, no, a woman does not have the right to say no. Ugh. What? 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 My God. So that, that, that rapist is completely divesting that woman of human qualities, of, of any kind of empowerment or, or individuality to be able to say no. And then it's really, in his mind, it wasn't rape. Yeah. So Dr. The, Zars, the, there's, you know, I hope we're out of time now, but I hope you'll come back because I think this is, this is such important information and I'm learning things from you um, that I think I really need to know going forward. And I, I hope we can schedule an, another time slot where we can continue this discussion. Definitely. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Nancy Zars, professor of the psychology of terrorism, hostage negotiation at the Chicago School. We'll, we'll be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We have a few minutes before we're going to talk to Cook County Commissioner uh, Donna Miller. 
about some free stuff going on in the south suburbs, some free classes you're going to want to know about. Uh, so I want to share a little bit more about a couple of the big stories of the day. One, of course, is, of course, this ridiculous um, <laughs> this ridiculous report that was re- released by Robert Herr, a Republican member of the DOJ, sadly uh, asked by Merrick Garland to look into Joe Biden's handling of classified documents. And, you know, her says, yeah, you know, nothing really to bring charges over. Uh, didn't seem to do it willfully, but didn't seem to know the year his son died and all these other things that have nothing to do with what he was tasked with. Earlier today, we've heard from the White House counsel who's slamming the way this report was put together. Uh, we heard from Kamala Harris. I also want to share with you now um, what um, Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman had to say uh, about this report. Um, listen to this. Do you have any concerns at all? not just because of what we read in this report, which a lot of uh, people on this show don't think should have been in the report, but do you have concerns right now about President Biden's age as it moves toward the general election? No, I don't have any concerns, and and that's from personal interactions. Um, He's got a a terrific team around him. He is very knowledgeable and experienced, Um, and he has even recently... Um, completely dominated the Republicans. You look at the Fiscal Responsibility Act. Uh, he did a fabulous job. And my understanding is that he was behind the scenes. And with because of his experience negotiating over so many different years, uh, he knew exactly where the negotiation was going to go. And he took Kevin McCarthy's shirt. Um, I, I think President Biden is uh, incredibly experienced, knowledgeable, wise. And I don't have concerns about his age. Remember, the job of the president is to guide our country. It is, you know, not to uh, be a cheerleader for the United States. It is to govern our country. And I think when you see the juxtaposition of how he handled this case, fully cooperating, respecting the rule of law, respecting the independence of the Department of Justice, and you juxtapose that with Donald Trump, what you see is someone who really cares about our country and cares about our democracy, juxtaposed an opposite to a criminal to someone who is clearly out for himself, uh, does not believe the law applies to him and is a danger to this country. And that's the choice that the American people are going to have. Hey, one big story of the week was this report um, coming from a Republican who was assigned this job by Merrick Garland. Let us not forget that, who completely goes past his portfolio to comment on Uh, What he observed we should know about, you know, Joe Biden is a feeble old man. Just outrageous. Um, The other thing I remember uh, yesterday I was keeping track on C-SPAN of the Senate debate on the motion to proceed on this $95 billion foreign aid bill to Israel, Ukraine and Taiwan. I haven't forgotten about you and I haven't forgotten about this. Um, The motion to proceed... (laughs) was passed. They proceeded. They are proceeding. They are now spending time debating on this aid package. It is going on as we speak. If you are one of those people who really enjoys a good C-SPAN production, 
You can join it live right now. If the Senate wraps up their debate and votes on this bill, then it will go to the House of Representatives, where um, Mr. Mike Johnson, Speaker of the House, is going to have some decisions to make. What does what does he do about this? You know, the original bill that the Republicans demanded include border funding. Eh, that kind of fell apart. And then Mike Johnson tried to do a standalone bill just to um, fund Israel and avoid Taiwan and Ukraine. And that didn't go anywhere. <sighs> if Mike Johnson goes forward with this. He could potentially face a no-confidence vote from the radical members of his party. But um, the Democrats are determined that there will be aid for Ukraine. Um, just this afternoon, former Polish president Lech Wałęsa, remember him? If you're of a certain age, you have a great deal of admiration for this man and what he did to make Poland a more democratic country. Lech Wałęsa has been on CNN this afternoon pleading that the American government fund aid to Ukraine because Poland understands that if Putin wins, he ain't going to stop with Ukraine. And why the Republican Party is incapable of seeing that is anybody's guess. This whole idea of we won't vote for aid unless there's border stuff. Well, here's the border stuff you wanted. Oh, no, we don't like this. This we don't like this border stuff. We want different border stuff. Well, what do you mean? Well, actually, Donald Trump just told us that he didn't want any any votes on the border because he doesn't want Joe Biden to look like he's accomplishing anything. Oh, now we get it. So there has been chaos. Republican Representative Eli Crane, who is, I was going to say a moron, but um, maybe I should just say he's a far-right Republican. He actually gave an interview where he said that his constituents, his constituents really love the chaos. His constituents would like to see the whole government brought to its knees. Yeah. Listen to this. Honestly, I, I don't I don't care about basic governments. Though I actually think that a little bit of uh, um, turmoil, if you will, actually ends up being good for the American people at times. I mean, most of my voters would love to see this place shut down because they don't think it works for them. And they specifically, they want to see it shut down until the border shut down. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this idea that somehow Trump is promulgating that uh, Joe Biden with a stroke of his pen could close the border. Well, if that was the case, why did Donald Trump never do that in his four years as president? I'm, I'm just asking for a friend. Uh, alleged Democrat Joe Manchin weighed in on the border bill 
and the fact that it collapsed. And of course, he's framing it in terms of what this means for Joe Manchin and his future. Listen to this. I just I can't even describe. I have no description of what I witnessed today on the floor of the Senate. Um, only thing I can tell you, it, it reaffirmed my decision not to run again because I have totally come to the conclusion, they reaffirmed it today, you're not going to fix Washington with the political discourse and division that we have here in Washington. So I'm going to do everything I can going around the country trying to get people to understand that the pressure has to be put on. It's about our country. It's not about you or the party. And people that are running and it's worried about themselves or the party that they represent or the party they belong to, that should be immaterial concerning what the job you have to do, which is basically protecting and defending the Constitution and healing our country. Jeff, 18,000 Border Patrol agents, 18,000, have supported this piece of legislation. Not for political reasons. These are people that were totally opposed to Joe Biden's handling of the, of the border since day one. They now have said this is the most transformative piece of legislation that they have seen that would secure a border. And then all of a sudden, because of politics, Jeff, it fell apart. Yes, it did fall apart, Mr. Manchin. It fell apart because the Republicans are beholden to Donald Trump. Ronna Romney McDaniel is walking away from head of the RNC because Donald Trump doesn't want her there anymore. Uh, this Monday of this week, I talked to Pat Brady, who was the former head of the Republican Party in Illinois, and he said there is no longer a Republican Party. There is only the party of Donald Trump. And I think he is exactly right. Um, some people like Manchin, Manchin is still flirting with this idea of making a presidential run at the head of a no labels ticket. I hope it doesn't happen. And I don't believe at this moment in time, the way things stand, that it will, you know, because Manchin is nothing but a politician. And he's not going to stick his neck out like this if he doesn't think that he has a serious chance of winning. And the way things are right now, he no labels has no chance of winning. Even one of the guys who originally founded no labels has walked away from it and said that it has no choice of chance of winning on its own. The only thing no labels will be capable of doing is acting as a spoiler. And uh, does Joe Manchin really want his legacy to be that he helped get Donald Trump elected? I don't think so. I don't think that is the case. Let's uh, take a break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk to Cook County Board member Donna Miller about some free classes that um, she is behind. And if you live in the south suburbs, this is something that you will want to take advantage of. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We try to keep you apprised of events in your area that um, will make you a wiser voter, make you more politically aware. 
We'd also like you to know about a couple of things coming up where you could be in a position to save somebody's life. Cook County Commissioner Donna Miller joins us uh, to talk about some classes she is helping to organize. Hello, Donna. How are you? Hello, Joan. I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you know, with with these kinds of classes, with CPR classes, I always think they're really important because the life you save could be mine. You know, I mean, so I want everybody to know um, how to do this. Tell me what you've organized, where it is and how it's going to take place. Well, thank you. Yeah, and you're right. The life you save will most likely be someone you're close to. And um, that's why we want people to know CPR. We, uh, this is Heart Month. The, uh, February is Heart Month for American Heart Association. And every year for the years that I've been Cook County Commissioner, we have had CPR and ABA training with our partners at the county building, um, who are Illinois Heart Rescue. And Illinois Heart Rescue does an amazing job training people on CPR. We're going to have uh, also CPR and AED trainings at local fire departments throughout the Southland. But this does not preclude anyone from going to their local fire department because fire departments have CPR trainings in almost every station with the paramedics and the CPR instructors um, who might be the local fire chief or what have you. So that's why it's important for everybody to get out. I sponsor a resolution at Cook County recognizing February 2024 as Heart Month in Cook County. And bystander CPR training zone is really the most important thing a person can learn because bystanders, that means just regular people, bystanders, someone who might be walking down the street. Today I was on a flight. They asked for someone who might have some medical training on the flight I was on. Anyone can be a bystander. Yes. So the data shows that anyone who uh, CPR initiated by a bystander can nearly double or triple the chance of survival from a cardiac arrest. So that's the important part about knowing CPR and using AED machines. I know that um, um, that this kind of training is available at fire stations, but these uh, two events, the one you have scheduled for Oak Forest and the one for South Holland, are those through firefighters or are those different? No, those are through the local fire stations, and they are happy to do it. They're so excited. These are open to the public. Anyone can sign up and come get this life-saving training. And I think the other thing that's important about engaging our local fire departments is because they're the ones who are out there every day. If the paramedic gets called or if the fire department gets called, they need us to help them until they get there. Everybody can't get there, you know, as quick as possible, but we need to be trained as regular citizens so that if someone does suffer a cardiac event, that we're increasing their chance of survival until the paramedics get there. And, you know, even if somebody um, had CPR training previously, um, I just updated my CPR training Oh, um, I don't know, a year or two ago, but I had when I first did it, AEDs didn't exist. And so a big part (laughs) for me, I mean, you know, I mean, there are changes in CPR as as we learn more about what's most effective, like 
the number of compressions or when you breathe some for somebody or how you breathe or what you do. That does evolve. But uh, the yes. these new AED machines that you see in almost every building you go into. I've uh, before I had no. this training, I would look at those machines and I would think, huh, I wonder if I had to grab that machine, if I'd have any idea how to use it. I mean, that's really exactly important. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that point up because, right, we walk by them every day. They're in airports, they're in bus stations, they're in schools, they're in your office building, they're everywhere, and people walk right by them and don't know how to use them. They don't know, am I supposed to break glass? I mean, what am I supposed to do? (laughs) The easy thing about them, though, is once you open it, even if you've never seen it and you turn it on, it gives you instructions. It tells you exactly what to do. So it's really a fail-safe method that you can use without even having training. Of course, we do want people to get trained, but that's just out there so that people will pay attention to say, what is this? There's one on the floor by my office um, at the county building, and I started asking people, hey, did anyone realize that we have an AED machine here? And most people were like, no, I never noticed that a day in my life. But we walk by it all the time. Mm-hmm. And you're right. Those AED machines, they do try to make, once you open them up, the instructions are very clear and the machines are regulated so that, you know, the machine decides after it uh, records a person's heart rhythm, the machine decides whether or not it needs to do anything. So they try to make it, uh, dare I say, idiot proof. But I got to tell you that just walking through it, seeing the component parts and understanding that there were these fail-safes in question certainly gave me a lot of confidence. I mean, I would now not be afraid to grab one of those machines off the wall and uh, try to use it because I've just because I've walked through it once and I now have um, a very cursory, but still an understanding of the basics of how it works. And I have confidence. That's the bottom line. Yeah, that really is. And I was just in Sauk Village, which is out in the south suburbs, with our chief out there at the fire department. And one of the really important things he made a point about with the AEDs is you can't hurt someone with it. Mm-hmm. So that's what people also need to realize, that if you're afraid of the machine, you're not going to hurt someone. People think they're going to give them extra shock or it's going to make them have a, an additional problem. That is not the case. It's better to use it, and it might not be used exactly correctly than to not use it at all. Absolutely. And uh, for those of you who might want some more information about Uh, Some of these classes that are scheduled in the south suburbs, you can go to Commissioner Donna Miller's Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash Cook County Commissioner Donna Miller. And uh, there's an events page and you click on that and you can find out where the next trainings are scheduled. And uh, Donna, thank you for joining us and uh, giving us this important information. Well, thank you. And just I just want everyone to remember CPR does save lives. So thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. That is going to do it for me this week. Um, Patty Vasquez is uh, not in today. I think Dan Schaefer is uh, sitting in for her. Um, and uh, I will see you Monday. 
Remember, our day kicks off every Monday at 6 a.m. with Richard Chu. And uh, Ray's been listening, and he said Richard has put, been putting together an absolutely fabulous morning show. So I do hope you give Richard Chu a chance at 6 a.m. Uh, here on WCPT. And then I will see you at 2 o'clock on Monday. Go out and do something this weekend that brings you joy, okay? There's your assignment. Uh, That's going to do it for me. Stay safe. Have fun. See you Monday. Bye.